0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K E Y S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. But what
1: I did at the end of every week um, was I would write down my lessons for the week. What did I learn this week? And I um, ended up creating a, uh, an emotional equation. And I wrote a book called Emotional Equations. It was a New York, New York Times bestseller seven years ago. And um, the emotional equation, that first one, was dis, uh, s- despair equals suffering minus meaning, which is a very heady, deep concept. Which is despair equals suffering minus meaning. Suffering is a constant in life, uh, if you're if you're of Buddhist philosophy. But you, the truth is, suffering is always present if you want to find it. But despair and meaning are variables, and so it, the way the math works is if uh, if it's seven equals ten minus three. Which is the math equation, but despair equals suffering minus meaning. So despair is at seven, suffering is 10, meaning is three. If you can actually take your three for meaning up to four, your despair goes down from seven to six. So one of the key messages um, for me was okay, how am I finding meaning in my life? And often the way I found meaning in my life was actually cultivating my learning. And when I cultivated my learning, I was able to actually cultivate my wisdom. Uh, And that, to me, for anybody who wants to, at a young age, become wise faster, learn how to um, make sense and meaning out of the experiences you've had so that they become markers in your brain and in your heart and your gut um, that you can use later.
2: Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
5: it's great to be with you yeah so I actually have known about your work for quite some time I know that Seth Godin has referenced it in his own work and of course we know you for what you do at Airbnb and now this new book which we will get into but before we get into all of that I want to start by asking you what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life in your career
1: that's interesting um thanks for the question. They both are very meaningful to me. They're, they're both eighty years old. Actually, my dad's, dad's eighty one now. Uh, my dad, my mom was actually a teacher, and then when she had three kids, she became sort of the classic uh, stay at home mom and volunteer in different um, uh, activities in the community. My dad was um, initially more of just a, a traditional business leader in large companies, McDonald Douglas, Union Bank, places like that, and then. Um, in his mid-40s, he decided to start his own company uh, with a, with his childhood friend, and it was a, a real estate investment company, um, doing a little bit of real estate development and real estate investment. And I would just say that my, the Im- impact my dad's choice had on me was, uh, it was a really hard thing for him to do in his mid-40s. He had three kids, two of them in college, or actually one in graduate school, one in college. And he was really at a state where um, it was not; a, it was a fragile time financially for him to basically cut ties with the corporate world. Uh, so I think it taught me that you know, God, if you're gonna if you're gonna go and, and and go out and do something entrepreneurial, do it earlier as opposed to midlife or later. Not to say that you shouldn't you can't do it any time in your life. You should uh, if you're if you're passionate enough about it. So I ended up starting my company at age 26, which was a much more appropriate time to, to be able to be poverty-stricken. Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, your mom, being a teacher, uh, I know that you went to Stanford with Seth Godin. You work at a place probably surrounded by people who are educated. What did uh, that teach you about education, and uh, how did that inform your perspective on where we're at with our education system today?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, my, mom, my mom's always been... Um, She's helped me to see that you know reading is such a fundamental way to, to learn. And we all have different learning styles, and I definitely uh, enjoy reading and writing as, uh, uh, as one of my learning styles. I do think that um, the big change compared to, say, when my mom got her degree, her teaching degree, and, and when I was younger is the pace of change in the world and the need to continue to be a lifelong learner is like never before. Um, and so I, I do believe that I've sort of upped the ante relative to my mom in terms of how much I am a voracious learner. Um, this is part of the reason I could, at, at age 52, with zero tech experience, join Airbnb and be open to it because I was open to being the dumbest person in the room a lot of the time. and. Um, and you know, if your if your point of view on learning is that you 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 do it to be the best, then which quite honestly, I don't I don't know how you move from from like being the dumbest to the best overnight. You have to sort of recognize that it's a real process. And uh, so, I would just say that to me, lifelong learning sort of defines uh, what does it mean to breathe uh, in a, in a modern world.
5: Mm-hmm. How do you think that? Uh our modern education system is going to change as a result of this.
1: Well, it, what's very clear is we've had a three-stage life for a long time. You learn until you're 20 or 25, you earn till you're 65, and then you retire until you die. That model deserves to evaporate, and it, certainly for millennials, no, like very few people have any sort of allegiance to it. But if you look at people who are Gen Xers, a little more allegiance, and boomers like me—that's what we grew up with. That's sort of what we thought was the future. So that model, it, it, in essence, was saying you learn all your all you can early in life, and and then you fill your tank of gas, uh, your fleet, your your vehicle and your tank of gas, and then you try to you try to spend the rest of your life um, making it on that one tank of gas. Well, that's just. BS. Yes, I mean it doesn't make any sense, especially in a world that's changing so quickly so uh, I, what I think is we need to have pit stops along the way and you know l- lifelong learning means you're, you're learn- learning all the time, but you may actually take breaks in midlife or in mid 30s or whenever and so what that means is educational institutions, whether they're the new kinds like MOOCs or they're the old kinds like the traditional you know higher education they all need to be open to um, not just educating people 25 and younger, uh, because frankly, I think there'll be people in their 70s and 80s who are going to be wanting to learn. If you're going to live to your 100, why would you ever stop learning? Uh, you know, Peter Drucker, one of the most famous management theorists of all time, was famous for the fact that he was just insatiably, insatiably curious. And so he would take a new subject every two years That had nothing to do with being a business professor. And he'd learn everything about it to become, you know, sort of a world's leading expert in it. And I think that kind of, it's part of the reason he lived to age 95. It's part of the reason he had a fertile mind. Um, And I think that that's going to be more of the model of the future. So uh,
5: speaking of education, uh, I know you said you started your your company at, at 26, and uh, I do want to talk about that. But I think the, the thing that I remember very distinctly in uh, probably a handful of Seth Godin interviews was he said that you guys had formed this group at Stanford Business School, uh, where you would get together once a week and you would meet to discuss your ideas. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What prompted that? Uh, and what did you learn from that experience?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's... I have such a fondness for that time and for Seth. Uh, you know, there were five of us. They were all, we were all guys. We were the youngest people in the class. Um, I think Seth and I might have been the two youngest. I came straight in from undergrad. So I was 21 years old when I started Stanford Business School, which is, you know, not just unheard of now, it was unheard of then, too. It was just really unusual. I had taken some time off as an undergrad, I had some extra, uh, extra, uh, Uh, AP credits. And so it allowed me to work as an undergrad. So we were the young people in the class and, and you know, our classmates made us feel that way. (laughs) They often actually told us that, um, they were, uh, very interested in having us speak less because in class, because we really didn't have much to offer. Um, and so (laughs) I, So so, it's sort of like we became sort of each other's best friends because, like, we we sort of were of the mindset that we could um, maybe we could actually help tutor each other, and that's uh, a little bit of what we did. Is we um, we we all five of us had a, a very entrepreneurial streak in us as well. So um, quite often, what we would do is we would talk about um, some of our entrepreneurial ideas and share them share those ideas, and then just bounce the ideas around. Um, and yeah, and then you know, so ultimately, Seth and I wrote a book our second year of business school. We got credits to write a book called Business Rules of Thumb, which was the first book for both of us. And uh, who knew later, we'd we both have written you know, a lot more books and a lot more bestsellers. Do you
5: think that uh, where you've ended up uh, and who you've become is a byproduct of the fact that you guys had this very specific and deliberately chosen peer group?
1: I don't think that that peer group or that particular way that we learned uh, together necessarily created me for who I am today. I think it's actually more evidence of who I was then and who I have always been. So I don't think that that actually sort of leapfrogged me in any way. I, I do think the idea of group learning and having a group of people sort of feed off each other um, in a way where we were all vulnerable, we were all hungry, uh, we were all foolish. Uh, I think that we all had that sense of um, robust appetite for uh, imagining you know entrepreneurial ventures and, and 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 that kind of ecosystem when you're surrounded by people who are um, supporting your your dreams, your hopes, and your dreams, is you know valuable. You know, in all kinds of environments, and I think it was certainly it helped foment my my uh, interest in ultimately starting a company two and a half years out of business school. So
5: two and a half years out of business school, I remember when I was 26 years old, the idea of doing something like starting a hotel chain uh, would definitely never have occurred to me. I wouldn't have even known where to start. What do you think it is about you that made you have the audacity to say, you know what, I can do this, and I'm 26? I'm and uh, what, if any, were the challenges that you faced initially to get it off the ground?
1: Well, it, it's it's sort of like my friends, the three founders of Airbnb who were twenty six and twenty four, the three of them, um, when they when they started, they didn't know what they didn't know. And similarly, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um and I think that uh that can actually be a, a positive at times because uh your fears can paralyze you and uh but I think the key was to actually, in both my case and their case, is to quickly surround myself and they surround themselves with people like me and they, I surrounded myself with people like uh, you know, 15 years older than me who understood the hotel business a lot better than I did. I mean, I, the, the beautiful of it is the audacity of the ideas we had, um, me as a boutique hotelier, the founders of Airbnb as a home-sharing company, um, had a lot to do with the fact that we were not um, weighed down by the historical baggage of our knowledge of the industry, and so it allowed us to have the fresh eyes uh, and the fre- the fresh mindset to imagine things that, you know, frankly, uh, you know, boutique hotels were back when I started were just getting off the ground in the U.S. Um, and frankly, I, I I went into boutique hotels, frankly for the for low priced and mid priced boutique hotels. The most of the boutique hoteliers who got off the ground at that time, Ian Schrager and Bill Kimpton, were going after high end customers. I was going after to the economy and mid-price customers. And a lot of people said, listen, those those boutiques, you can't create a boutique hotel to satisfy that market. And it's like, well, we did. We created 52 boutique hotels and you know create created the second largest boutique hotel company in, in the US. So the long story short is I um, I think that you know you, your willingness to try things and fail probably is greater when you're doing it and no one's watching and no one was watching the three founders of airbnb when they started and no one was watching me as a 26 year old buy a broken down no tell motel in the inner city of san francisco other than the few investors i'd cobbled together most people had no idea what this guy was doing and and you know it's it you can make your mistakes early before everybody's noticing
5: how do you maintain that after you've uh, achieved some degree of success and people are actually watching and and how do you maintain that throughout adult life
1: I think, you know, the, this is what I talk about in my book. So, you know, I, I really believe that um, the, the book's called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. And um, there's a, the premise of the book is this, is that as you get older, you still can retain that sense of being the intern. I was brought into Airbnb to, to be the elder uh, because of my industry knowledge. But the truth is, I, I was 52 years old when I joined, and I'd never been in a tech company before. So I didn't know a damn thing about technology, the lingo, the strategy, et cetera. And then I became head of strategy for the company, for a tech company, which is like, what, really? <laughs> I'm and head of global hospitality, and now I'm head of strategy too. And I, you know, I've never worked in a tech company. Um, this is six years ago, almost. So um, it, it turned out really well. But the fact is, it required me to actually have a willingness to fail a willingness to ask naive questions. Most people in senior leadership roles ask what and how questions because they're trying to optimize and what and how questions are optimization questions. But I asked a lot of why and what if questions, which are the kind of questions that a four-year-old asks. And um, so I, I, I owned my my naivete. I turned it into sort of a catalytic curiosity. And frankly, because I had a fresh pair of eyes i actually with some of my why and what if questions discovered things that the company had had a blind spot about that needed to get changed and that we could actually leverage and that you know frankly whether like a few examples business travel i said you know business travelers like having long term stays sometimes if they're corporate relocations or doing project work, stuff like that. Oh my God. When I first started talking about doing business travel at Airbnb, I was like, you're kidding me. No, we don't want, we don't want corporate suits. They don't, you know, it doesn't fit our belong anywhere spirits. Like, wait a minute. You know, you guys were like, when you had your first guests coming to stay with you on the air mattresses on your floor, It was three people coming to a business, a design conference. They're coming for business. That was business travel. So the the origins of Airbnb are business travel. So you know today, we have over seven hundred thousand companies that have signed contracts for Airbnb for work. Um, So that's just enormous. And uh, there was a program called the Superhost program when I joined. Only had two hundred of them in the world, and they hadn't signed up a new one in a year and a half. It was a program on life support that was supposed to be actually shut down, Um, and I was like, you know, what we need here in order to actually, since the people providing service at our Airbnb listings are not our employees, they are our, you know, sort of micro entrepreneurs. They're our host community. We need to actually understand the psychology of being a host, and and the idea of having both intrinsic and extrinsic motivation is going to be critical to us helping these hosts do their best. Um, and if, if the hosts are doing their best, we're improving the quality on the platform. And so we took the Superhost program and completely remade it. And uh, there are now six hundred thousand hosts on the on the, I'm sorry, six hundred thousand Superhosts on the platform. And, and it's a, a measure of quality, and it's something that you know that our guest community appreciates because it helps them know. Okay, you know, I, I have a little bit more confidence in someone who's a Superhost. Or thirdly, you know the, the peer-to-peer review system that Airbnb had um, was very much like Yelp or TripAdvisor, which was great. Um, uh, and it allowed you to read other people's reviews, but it actually had some tragic flaws in it that led to a lot of retribution and to some people not actually um, using it. And so I came in and asked some why and what if questions. And next thing I knew, we were changing the peer-to-peer review system in some fundamental ways that actually got it to be a lot better such that now 70 to 75% of our hosts and guests review each other, which is shocking because in the hotel industry, which I know well, only 5% of people actually, a guest, fill out an online review form. So that kind of instantaneous feedback loop is so valuable as a means of Airbnb improving guest satisfaction throughout our whole system. So long story short is, those are three specific examples of where I was naive I had a point of view that came, frankly, from asking a why or what if question that led us to doubling down on three different programs that have been very successful in the company.
5: Wow. So in the book, you basically distill this into a couple of forms of wisdom, and you actually go through a number of lessons. And these things stood out to me. You talked about good judgment. You said, the more we've seen and experienced, the better we can handle problems as they come in stride. Unvarnished insight, emotional intelligence, holistic thinking, and stewardship. Uh, are those things uh, things that come about as a result of just experience and, and, you know, having been around for so long? And how do you cultivate these things on a regular basis?
1: Yeah, the thing that's interesting and I read about in the book is that wis- there's very little evidence that wisdom and age are correlated, which is sort of a sad and shocking <laughs> fact. Um, And so, for you know, so I so it's interesting. I'm writing a book about wisdom at work, and I'm an older person in a younger workplace. So, I think people naturally say, okay, well, you know, the wisdom all resides with the old people. That's not true. But here's the other fact people who actually cultivate and harvest their wisdom over the course of a lifetime do get wiser with time. So, while the average person is not cultivating and harvesting their wisdom, Those that do it can be wiser at age 55 than they were at 25. And I can say quite definitively, the decisions I make today, you know, at age almost 58, are better than the decisions I made at age 25 in general, because I actually have developed this pattern recognition. You know, pattern recognition is a a, a definitive part of what wisdom offers. And pattern recognition is basically understanding something from the past. Seeing something, having the instinct—maybe the gut instinct, maybe it's you know, maybe it's conscious, maybe it's unconscious—that you can see, ah, I've seen this before, and using that "I've seen this before" mentality to say, ah, it's influencing my decisions moving forward. So, how how do you um, how do you harness that? Well, I think absolutely. Doing sort of after action reviews, which is something we did at Airbnb, which was a way for us to sort of say, after we had done some big project or launched something, um, what did we learn from it? Uh, when I was going through a very difficult time 10 years ago, when I wanted to sell my company, Joie de Vivre in the bottom of the Great Recession, um, and I was really actually, I was probably clinically depressed at the time. I, it's, at the time, I, w- I wasn't really getting help for it. I probably should have been. But what I did at the end of every week um, was I would write down my lessons for the week. What did I learn this week? And I um, ended up creating a uh, an emotional equation. And I wrote a book called Emotional Equations. It was a New York, New York Times bestseller seven years ago. And um, the emotional equation, that first one was dis, uh, s- despair equals suffering minus meaning, which is a very heady, deep concept, which is, Despair equals suffering minus meaning. Suffering is a constant in life, uh, if you're if you're of Buddhist philosophy. But you, the truth is, suffering is always present if you want to find it. But despair and meaning are variables, and so it, the way the math works is if uh, if it's seven equals ten minus three, which is uh, the math equation. But despair equals suffering minus meaning. So despair is at seven, suffering's ten, meanings three. If you can actually take your three for meaning up to four, your despair goes down from seven to six. So one of the key messages um, for me was, okay, how am I finding meaning in my life? And often the way I found meaning in my life was actually cultivating my learning. And when I cultivated my learning, I was able to actually cultivate my wisdom. Uh, And that, to me, for anybody who wants to, at a young age... Become wise faster. Learn how to um, ex- make sense and meaning out of the experiences you've had, so that they become markers in your brain and in your heart and your gut um, that you can use later.
5: So uh, you, you alluded to, to dealing with depression, and I think that you know you look at the world today, and we're seeing sort of a, a rise of. Mental health issues across the board, uh, you know, from celebrity founders to you know people like Anthony Bourdain committing suicide. Uh, I wonder, one, how did you get out of it, and what role do you think that the world that we live in, in terms of technology and, and social media and all that, plays in, in the issues that we're dealing with?
1: Well, it's you know there are a lot of inf- external influences. There's, that's there always have been. You know, there are a lot of people in depressing... You know, you could have been a pioneer. Going across the uh, the prairie, uh, and you know, having people die because they didn't have food, and that could lead to depression. But generally speaking, and this is sort of an, an odd thing to say, but it's depression—the way we understand it in the modern world—is often a sort of first-world phenomena. It doesn't mean that people aren't depressed in third in sort of third world or developing countries. Of course, they are. But in some ways, when people are in a state where it's very survival-driven, being depressed actually puts your survival at risk. And and frankly, in a survivalist culture, you may not live very long in that way. But in a modern culture, you can. Um, And and therefore, I think we have to look at in the modern culture, what are the things that actually influence that? And um, there's so much evidence empirically that how we see ourselves relative to other people has an enormous influence on our happiness. Famous studies long ago, uh, not, not, oh, not that long ago, maybe 10, to 15 years ago, about if people were asked if you could make $50,000 a year, but make, you're making more than your neighbors, or $150,000 a year and you're making less than your neighbors, which would you choose? And on average, people chose the $50,000 a year because, from a relative perspective, you were making more than your neighbors. So someone could put themselves mentally in, in the place of um, thinking that. That means okay, maybe I'm living in rural Mexico, and uh, uh, so I think that that kind of thinking makes us realize, okay, relative happiness is is very relevant to how we feel about ourselves and and the relevant happiness where do we find it? We find it in social media today, and yet social media is not exactly a an accurate format. Um, you know, because we're in many ways, we're sort of there's a, it's narcissism on display on some level, and it's not I, i'm not I'm not totally negative about social media, but I do think learning how to dose it in proper quantities and to realize that you know comparing your insides with other people's outsides oh. has always been a rather toxic game, and it's even more toxic in the world of of um, social media because the person who's posted has everything, they have every ability to just preen and make themselves look perfect um, because they're posting about themselves. So I think um, it, one of the things I learned in my early 20s was about mindfulness and about meditation. And for me, meditation has been the, probably the godsend for my mental health and especially in t- times when I have felt maybe some depression. Um, Meditation takes me inside. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not comparing myself in a relative way with other people. And um, it has helped me to feel more balanced and centered at times when I felt off-center.
2: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
4: irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market
5: wow uh well the four key areas that you talk about in the book that uh, i wanted to get into where you kind of distilled them into lessons you said lesson one was evolved lesson two curiosity lesson three collaborate and lesson four, counsel. And I think the the thing that struck me most uh, in the section on Evolve was when you said presence is far more intricate and rewarding uh, an art than productivity. The cult of productivity has its place, but worshiping at its altar can rob us of our sense of curiosity, joy, and wonder, and rob a company of its ability to self-reflect. And I'll tell you why this struck me in particular. Uh, I was an intern at Intuit between my first and second year of business school. And I remember you know, sitting in a lunch and learn. And my entire goal of that internship was to get an offer at the end. That was it. It didn't matter. Nothing else mattered. And of course I didn't get an offer at the end, but I remember this very distinctly because I asked a senior executive, what's the key to getting ahead? And she said, presence. And that came back to me 10 years later. So when I read that, I looked at it and thought, okay, that's you're echoing that exact sentiment. So how do you instill that in people who are filled with ambition and also at the same time balance that with, uh, you know, planning for the future? Because I, I know from reading the book, you and I are both surfers as well. And I always say surfing is like you, you keep your eyes on the horizon, but live in the moment.
1: Yeah. So I, I think what's true of most things in life is that it's no, it's like, there's no single bullet, silver bullet, nor being at one extreme or the other is the right place to be. It's usually somewhere on the the moderated path in between. So I would say, you know, presence versus productivity. Well, for me, presence actually helps give me productivity. Um, uh, The opposite of presence is absence. And back to talking about social media and about our attachment to gadgets, I think what really strikes people sometimes about what I call a modern elder um, or certainly I'll just speak for myself here at Airbnb is people would say you are just so present. And I would ask them, what does that mean? It means like you're not distracted. It's not, it's, you're not distracted with your iPhone. You're not distracted with your own brain, like what's going on there. And you're not just listening to my story. You're listening for my story. And like, what does that mean? Well, listening for my story is like, you see the threads inside. You're just like, You're seeing beyond the surface, and you're seeing beyond the surface in me and in yourself, and that's some. I I aspire to that, and it was you know when I heard things like that, I was like, wow, really? Aging can be aspirational. (laughs) You get older, and maybe you build a little more presence with time. So, presence is a really valuable gift, and yet, if you're spending ten hours a day meditating um, to build your presence, you there is there's a point at which presence. Needs to actually then translate in the in the in the organizational world to productivity and to action, Um, and so so productivity has value in the world. It's just that it's um, it's often almost seen as the it's back to the car analogy. It's almost like seen as like the um, you just you're going to run your car as fast as possible. And not ever taken in for a pit stop or even gas it up. <clears throat> no wonder at some point it runs out of gas and is exhausted and and you've sort of burned it out. And that's <clears throat> to some degree how we live our lives. Um, it's certainly mine. I I, I I listen. I'm a type A person, um, and when it comes to surfing, I uh, there's two two ways of being in my life, and it's either you're in the attain mode or you're in the attune mode. And when you're in the attain mode. It's usually conquest. It's usually very type A, etc. And I spend a lot of my life that way. So I'm just, I'm not like floating on air here. When I try to attain in yoga or in surfing, it's really hard. But when I get into the attune mode, which is frankly attuning and harmonizing myself with my surroundings, or with my body, or with the wave, um, or with a team when all of that's happening, I'm in a place where I'm able to ride that wave. Uh, And so I think the key in life is to be able to determine when does it make sense to be in the attain mode and when does it make sense to be in in the attune mode. And those two differences, those two ways of being, um, can serve you both. But you just need to know when, when... when's the right time to be in one versus the other.
5: So in the collaborate section, you brought up four things that really struck me. You said create psychological safety, make collaboration part of the culture, personality assessment tools, and implicit or explicit agreements. Can you expand on each one of those? The psychological safety in particular is the one that
1: really struck me. Well, let's, let's do one at a time. So tell, go ahead okay, and give so each one. so create
5: psychological safety.
1: Well, this is fascinating because, you know, Google... You know, one of the most valuable companies in the world is a tech company, first and foremost, full of engineers, full of people who... In um, you know, fact, full of really smart people. And so Google said like, why, they wanted to study why are some teams more effective than other teams. They created something called Project Aristotle, and they studied all their teams globally. And what they found is that the num- there were five <clears throat> key reasons for uh, uh, the effectiveness of teams. But the number one, far and away was psychological safety, which in essence means that everybody on a team feels appreciated and respected and able to communicate um, and without fear of reprisal. And this includes introverts. It includes people who are the others in the room, the people who don't look like everybody else in the room. Cognitive diversity um, is very relevant to this as well. So one of the relevances of this to my experience and the book was I... Saw the teams when I joined at Airbnb. It was, the teams were generally mostly <clears throat> young men um, who were incredibly competitive with each other, <laughs> and there was not that much of a collaborative spirit for some of them. And and frankly, it was the women or the older people in the room who, frankly, helped create the collaboration. Um, and that was the part that was remarkable. It was that it like it was it was the people who were so called the others on the teams. Um, and so I think that you know the key, one key lesson here is that um, having cognitive diversity on a team is very valuable because it means you don't get into the groupthink that can happen. Um, and so that, that's my thoughts on psychological safety.
5: What do you say to somebody who doesn't feel like they're in a situation where they have psychological safety? Because I can tell you from the bosses that I worked for that I pretty much gathered that, okay, yeah, me and the corporate world are never meant to be again.
1: You know, I th- I think um, the key is that, first of all, even bringing up those two words, psychological safety, is not a bad idea uh, to a boss who may be sitting in meetings with you. Now, you may, especially if you're a guy, a lot of guys say, oh, God, I feel like such a wimp. You know, I need, I need psychological safety. Um, no, you know, the point of this is not to say, that you're a wimp or that somehow you're fragile. It's actually to say um, the environment that is set by whoever's leading the meeting can have an enormous influence on people doing their best work in the meeting. Um, And so I think that, and if psychological safety is a, a term that feels a little bit too fragile for you, then just say, how do you help whoever's leading the meeting, it could be your boss, create the conditions for people to do their best work uh, in the context of those meetings, um, and you know, the the my book lays out what are some of the key things to know, and and it has a lot to do with really obvious things where people don't shut shut each other down, they don't use questions as a means of of almost badgering the witness. Um, there, the idea of appreciative inquiry, which is how to use questions that are catalytic in terms of people think of thinking about the possibilities. Um, so I, I, I can't get, I mean, there's a lot more we could go into on that one, but I want to make sure we, cap, we capture the other three as well.
5: Right. Uh, the other is, is making collaboration part of the culture. How do you guys do that, and how do other people do that?
1: Well, I think the key is you know, you, helping, you know, there's a very interesting narrative in the media about the sort of the, the lone tech genius who just sort of does it on their own, and, and as if you know, Steve Jobs just did it all on his own, and uh, Mark Zuckerberg did it all on his own. No, it's always been collaborative. there may be There may be breakthroughs, and there are geniuses who do come up with an idea that actually is catalytic to an organization. But the process of then executing that is absolutely a team sport. And so within that, um, helping people to understand different styles of personality is one key piece. Some of it's the, you know, the, the thing that we talked about with psychological safety. What are, the, what are the rules of engagement in a group or in a meeting? Um, you know, if you're actually in a meeting with a regular group of people and you as a team or the leader has never really addressed what are the rules of engagement, wow. I mean, it's sort of like, like going and um, driving a car without any laws of the road you have to have some rules of engagement. And it's a really helpful process, especially if it's a group that meets regularly. It'd be helpful to sort of say, what are our rules of engagement? Um, you know, I, I go to Burning Man every year. I'm on the Burning Man board. And there are rules of engagement for Burning Man, which are the 10 principles. And so having, having clear engagement rules are, are part of what I think makes for collaboration to be more effective. Um, I think one of the next ones you talked about was, was personality typing tools exactly yeah so i think that also helps too so so that's the third one and it sort of relates to this is you know when you actually understand different personality styles so let me use an example um so there are three three founders of airbnb um and two of them are exact opposites brian and nate are exact opposites on myers briggs so but they'd never actually been told that before and they while they got along okay they were almost like from different planets and so when I I would lead mo- most of our offsite retreats for the leadership team, and um, I, so I said, well, let's br- let's bring in a- i I'm not a huge fan of Myers Briggs. I think it's okay. There's other things I like the, the Enneagram better as a tool, um, but Myers Briggs is more better known. And so we brought in somebody who was doing some uh, offsite retreat facilitation, and we did the Myers Briggs all 12 people, we started saying, okay, what are the themes here? And what are the influences in terms of how our meetings run based upon these different personality types? But I would say for Brian and Nate to come to the conclusion, like, oh my God, we're exact opposites. There's 16 types and there's only one other type that I can be the exact opposite of and you are it. <clears throat> that became quite valuable because those two who previously were almost, sus- I wouldn't say, they were, they were never suspicious of each other, but 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 sometimes maybe not, on the same page, they all of a sudden started having a respect to realize, "Wow, he has my back he is the compliment to me, uh, the yin to the yang." and that actually really helped them to create a, and forge a much, much closer relationship uh, working relationship. Um, so yeah so I think there's a lot of value in making sure people understand different personality types.
5: And I guess the final one is implicit or explicit trade agreements what? Do we think?
1: Yeah, what that, what that speaks to is the idea, um, more r- related to the idea of mutual mentoring. Um, I was brought in to be the head of global hospitality and strategy at Airbnb, but I, t- I oversaw about six or eight other things. But one of the other things I was brought in to do was to be Brian Chesky's in-house mentor. Um, but what became clear to me is that Brian knew a lot of things I didn't know. Now, I was his mentor when it came to emotional intelligence, leadership skills. Uh, maybe strategic thinking and a few other things, and certainly the industry knowledge of the hospitality business. But Brian understood the tech industry. He understood Silicon Valley. He understood the Silicon Valley investors. He understood millennial travel habits. Um, And so uh, the implicit trade agreement is the idea that there is somebody else out there in your organization who you could learn from and they could learn from you. And, you don't have to write up a formal trade agreement, nor do you actually even have to say to each other, we are going to have a formal mutual mentoring relationship or even a mentoring relationship. But you could just say, hey, once a week, what if we just actually grab some you know, 30 minutes of tea or coffee in the afternoon and let's just, let's just riff? Um, and some of the riffing may get to the place of saying, hey, I, you know, I see that you're really good at this. Um, in my case, it was like, show me how my iPhone works. <laughs> There's a lot of apps and, and things on my iPhone. I just have no idea how they work. And so sometimes it was that that much instructional. In Brian's case, it was often, you know what? I'm having a really hard time getting through to the following three people um, and in terms of how I'm trying to help them as their leader. What am I doing wrong? Or what can I do differently? So you know, that was a great example of okay, I was offering Brian some EQ, emotional intelligence, and Brian was offering me some DQ, some digital intelligence.
5: What do you think it is uh, that has enabled people like Brian and the founders of Airbnb to perform at the level that they haven't achieved the success that they have, personality wise, discipline wise? Are there things about them you think that really have enabled them to, to get
1: to this level? Well, let's start with the fact that. And I'm not sure if this is absolutely accurate, but we have done some research and have not found it. I don't know if there's ever been a company that has three founders still actively involved. Um, Joe's a little bit more involved in the innovation lab part of it, but he's still actively involved in business. He's still on the board. I don't know of a company that has had three young founders grow the company to this kind of valuation and still have all three, 10 years into it, still actively involved. So I'm really proud of that fact. <laughs> I've been there for five and a half of those ten years, and I really know that when I joined, there were some challenges with the three of them. Not none, none that were, you know, if I had never shown up, they probably still would have made it worked out, probably. But who knows? It, it was definitely dicey at, at times. But I think what's really critical is that they have built a, a level of respect for each other, and they they are additive to each other. Each each of the three of them has a uh, particular sort of Superpower that is really valuable to the company and may be respected by the others. Um, they've been, they're constantly, all three are constantly willing to learn and get better. Um, uh, there's Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, about growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Um, I sort of introduced that idea to them and they all said, listen, we want to be individually with a growth mindset, we want the company to have a growth mindset. So I think that meant that we were there was a constant interest in improving ourselves as opposed to just proving ourselves. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors. Um, you know, clearly the, the business <laughs> it helps when your business is doing well. <laughs> so uh, you know, the Airbnb took had a very difficult first two years, and then by about 2010, really started to take off. And 2011 is when it really hit in a, a bigger way. I joined in early 2013, so I, by the time I joined, it was already you know a, a fast-growing and rocket ship. But it was you know still only about one and a half to two percent of the size of it is what it is today. So um, I want to ask you
5: a few more questions about work and, and sort of success. You, you said we still have an industrial era mentality toward productivity. How many quality widgets uh, an employee can produce quickly for the lowest potential overhead? And I wonder, one, what do you think the future of work is going to look like, given that we're automating so much and we're doing so much with technology? And this is a really strange question, but why do you think there are people who hate their jobs or end up in jobs they hate? Like, how does that even happen? How does somebody get hired for a job they can't stand?
1: That's a really interesting... So let's start with that part. Um, it's interesting. I, had a, I gave a talk yesterday, and I, I mentioned something to someone there was a Fortune 500 executive who heard me give a speech a few years ago, and he pulled me aside afterwards, and he said, um, you know what, I have so much Deadwood in my company. And I said, what do you mean, Deadwood? And he says, just lots of people who are apathetic and don't care. they have been there too long. And I said... Were they Deadwood when you hired them, or did they become Deadwood while you were their leader? <laughs> um, you know, the fact that they're Deadwood is like, you know, you're almost blaming it on them, but I would say take some responsibility. Um, and if it's during your leadership, then that's a bad sign about the culture. If, they, if you hired mistakenly, then that's where raw materials are so essential. A lot of people don't think of their talent. As raw materials, and if you have bad raw materials coming in, you're going to have bad raw materials coming out. And so, the, I say, you know, there's questions I love that are my favorite interview questions. And I used to do a lot of the interviewing of senior executives that weren't even high, I'm answering to me because Brian liked my point of view. I really appreciate that we have three kinds of relationships with our work. It's either a job, a career, or a calling. I, I will not hire somebody if I feel like I'm giving them a job, even for back in the day when I was a hotelier, someone on the front desk or someone on, as a bellman. If it's just a job for them, it's not worth taking that space and having someone who's just going to be filling a space for a job. I want someone who thinks of it as a career or preferentially a, a calling, of the, although that's more rare. And how do you find that? Well, you ask questions like, the question I love to ask for people who are going to be on on the front desk of our hotels is you know who are in the service businesses, tell me about somebody something you did for someone else in the last um, month where you were providing a service to somebody that you didn't have to provide or, or you, you you just gave something to somebody. what did you do? who did you do it for? How did it make them feel? How did it make you feel and the qualitative way of how they answer that question in terms of enthusiasm uh you know just the level of you know do do, does do i hear a passion um has an enormous influence on whether we would hire that person even if they already had like you know all this beautiful four seasons background all that stuff but if they didn't answer that one very well it was an indication to me that this was probably a job for them And what I really want to do is I I don't want to have an accountant on the front desk of the hotel because they like being behind the scenes. They're introverted and they like doing numbers. That's not who the person on the front desk of the hotel is going to be somebody who loves providing service, loves providing hospitality, loves making people happy. Um, And for all those reasons, I think the quality of the questions we ask people um, and the, and the, and the, and the key of making sure that you are hiring people who fit with the core values of your company and the culture are really essential and I like core values more than culture. culture the risk of saying it that you want people who are the culture is that you just get all the same people who look the same. Core values is a little bit
5: deeper than that. It's interesting as we're talking about it from the hiring side. Uh, I think you know, we want to look at it from the side of choosing. and the reason I do this is fresh in my mind is because I'm working on a section uh, for a new book proposal about passion and the fact that you know we, we have this sort of idea of blindly following a passion that we know nothing about. And I realized how how many times in my life I'd done that without actually thinking of, what is this going to be like day to day? And am I actually engaged in this thing that
1: I'm doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, listen, (laughs) we can become robots, that's for sure. Um, You know, I don't know if I have much more to offer on that other than to say that... um, you know the thing I will say that's an interesting observation. I, someone recently said to me, an executive recruiter who's probably maybe the best in the world, and I, I was asking her a question about the fact that I'm meeting more and more people who are in midlife, and let's—I'm defining midlife as 35 to 75. It used to be 45 to 65, but I think actually midlife is going younger because in a lot of industries with technology driving the business model, it's, there's more and more of an interest in having digital natives—younger people. And people are going to work longer because they're going to live longer. So, so I said, like people in, in midlife, 35 to 75, there's a lot of them feeling like, wow, they're too old. Um, how do they hide their age, is what I asked her. And she said something just so beautiful. She said, truly, um, assuming you can get your foot in the door, that's the challenge. You know, sometimes they just weed you out because your, your alma mater, you know, your, your graduation year from college is too, you know, too, too long ago. I mean, but is literally... Companies that do that are actually doing something illegal. That's discrimination. Uh, So, But, you know, um, the fact is, she said, when someone's curious and they're passionately engaged in what they do, their wrinkles evaporate. And so what, in essence, she was saying is, when someone's got the right kind of energy and they're really involved, um, you lose track of, their age. And so I I think that's a really important part of how I interview people too, was like, do I get this person's pulse? And if I actually don't get their pulse, if I don't really get their energy. Um, then I want to explore it further. And if ultimately like, you know, they may be the best in the world, but if something doesn't feel right, quite energetically, my favorite question is what's the number one way you're misperceived in the workplace. And that's almost a trick question. It's like, People have said, wait, misperceived, huh? So I'm this way, but people perceive me that way. or And it's a helpful question because it forces people to show their level of self-awareness and their level of emotional intelligence for how other people see them, too. And it also allows them to tell you how they have adapted to try to address that issue.
5: Well, I have two final questions for you. I know you got to get going here. So you said... One thing I've learned is yeah. that living richly is less about the net worth on your bank statement more about the value of the lessons who offer those who want to learn you have to offer those who want to learn from you and that struck me particularly because my first thought was, well yeah, that's easy for you to say <laughs> you know, uh, you know mm-hmm. you're high up at Airbnb you've sold a hotel company, but I wonder uh, how is that but I've always
2: believed that so, I've always I was believed that. ask you, so, is,
5: is you. Know, has that perspective changed over time? How do you value money and success? Uh, and how has that changed with age? And then given you know, that uh, we're seeing such a large amount of inequality, you, you know, what do you think of all that?
1: Well, I, you know, I think it goes back to something we talked about early in this conversation, which is um, uh, I think that How we see ourselves relative to other people is an important marker, but probably way too important. We we at a very young age we're taught too often that that sort of benchmarking versus others um, is the way we determine whether we're successful or happy. And I can tell you when it comes to happiness, it's not true. <laughs> You know, markers versus other people, whether it's, you know, how many zeros you have in your bank account um, or, or whatever it is, how, what, what your title is, usually doesn't actually create happiness. It might create the sense of success. The problem with our culture is that we've sort of built the model of success creates happiness, and it's really the opposite. More often, happiness creates success. And it's part of the reason I went to Bhutan 10 years ago to study the Gross National Happiness Index. And I gave a TED Talk about it because I wanted to just say, well, you know, not uh, happiness is, a, is an intangible metric, but a really interesting one. And could companies create the conditions for people to be happy and therefore through that happiness um, maximize their success? And Tony Shea at Zappos, you know, sort of studied me with Peak and really loved that, my, my book, Peak, which I wrote about 10 years ago. And there's a lot of companies now that have, and, and have frankly, a whole Harvard Business Review um, issue um, dedicated to the idea that happiness in an organizational context um, is an incredibly uh, correlated with success. And so I think that if that's true in an organizational context, of course it's pr- true on a personal context as well.
5: Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Um, when they've somehow tapped into like whatever it is inside themselves that is just sort of their gift that they have to give to the world. Um, and some t- people don't figure that out until their 50s or 60s, and others figure it out when they're five years old. But, once you start to really tap into that um, and then you sort of say, what, at what can I be world-class and how do I invest in that? Um, it really gives you the opportunity to, um, to frankly tap into the thing that is going to differentiate you, be your legacy, and you know, frankly help you to be more successful.
5: Well, I think that makes a really fitting end uh, to a really insightful conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, the book?
1: So chipconley.com is my website. And at that website, you'll uh, there's you'll see a part of the website that's related to the book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. You'll also see the Modern Elder Academy, uh, which is at modernelderacademy.org, which is part of the Chip Conley site. Which is the uh, new, uh, mid for the, the world's first midlife uh, wisdom school that we've created in Baja, California on the coast, uh, three acre campus. Um, and you'll be reading more about that because it's actually getting a lot of attention. Very cool.
5: Awesome. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your insights with our listeners.
1: Yes, what a joy. I appreciate the great questions.